we get to interview the number one shark, the guy who likes royalties, the guy who's an early adopter. And some of these things he can't even do. Like he can't even do cannabis. He'll, he'll, get, into, he'll get into it. When I say do, I don't mean consume it. I mean invest in it. Um, but psychedelics is something he's in. You guys know about a company, MindMed, and we're going to talk about it. But Kevin is just a hell of a guy. We've known him for many years. Very active, very smart, works with the biggest companies. One of his companies works in the crypto space, FTX. And without further ado, I want to introduce the number one shark, Mr. Wonderful, Kevin O'Leary. Kevin, we have a lot of chairs here, so I don't know. I, I don't know how we do this. No, Maybe These two look yeah, good. Yeah, these two look good. I, I like it. I, um, but just pretend we got, I, I, whatever. Okay. I just want to, before we start, uh, somebody gave me a, a package of pink rolling papers. I like that. Wow. Cool. Okay. Um, pink rolling papers. Yeah, yeah great idea. Yeah, Blazy uh, Bla Susan. Let's give the, the, the name. Okay. So we are here at the Psychedelics first day. Um, what, like, when did you first get into the psychedelic space? About three years ago, um, I was here actually right next door at the uh, Soho club and, uh, a young, young guy came to me and said, look, I want you to give me a few million bucks uh, to invest in psychedelics. I said, are you out of your mind? That's an illegal substance. It's schedule one narcotic. He said, no, I want to do FDA trials with it. And, um, it was a very fascinating conversation because at that time, everybody was trying to raise money for Bitcoin. It was, it was very crypto oriented. And I really got interested and I put a couple of guys with him to do some diligence on the whole thing. And Alex Kenji, who you've met, yep. uh, one of the guys that works with me, Larry Ventures. And Alex uh, rarely gets excited about anything. He's seen everything. He's and like he, a robot. Yeah, he, he's just, and he came back to me and said, listen, boss, we got to own this thing. The potential here is huge. And he was right. I mean, the addressable market's in the hundreds of billions of dollars. At that time, it was very nascent. He was one of the first. Others came along too, Atai, Compass. And collectively, those companies have raised billions of dollars. But they're all still in stage two trial. And so where, so where is um, MindMed on like the directory right now? Is it stage two trial or where? The way I index these companies is that there's, there's focus around psilocybin. There's focus around LSD. There's some derivative molecules being developed as well. Um, to me, and everybody has their own opinion, when I index a sector, I try and mitigate my risk based on trials. In biotech medicine, the outcomes are unknown, so it's very binary. You can chase a molecule for 10 years, and you, in stage three, you lose. And so you have to have multiple trials. And so I, I'd index them right now. I, I'm, I'm overweight mind med, but I also have exposure to compass and a tie because they're all doing things slightly differently, but they're all in stage two. And the theory that you have to have in investing here is the minute one of them gets to stage three on any medicine, you're going to lift all the tides. So you want ex multiple exposure. And then a couple of years after that, maybe 36 months later, when one gets awarded a medicine, Katie barred the doors for the sector. Yeah. So you're, you're in this. I would say relatively early this space. Like, how did you decide I want to get into psychedelics early? How many times in your investment life do you get to position yourself in a, in a brand new sector, a completely brand new sector? I mean, never is the answer. Once in a lifetime, if you're lucky. And this sector, and I'm not talking about cannabis right now, I'm talking about psychedelics as medicine, FDA approved trials, non 
recreational use. Remember what happened back in the early 60s, Timothy Leary and that whole movement, overdosing LSD, caused this to be elevated to a Schedule One narcotic and put aside, even though there's lots of promising evidence that microdosing, it could have some good attributes in terms of helping people with addiction, opioid addiction, alcoholism, anxiety, all these different massive markets. Um, it was ignored. And then we've tried all these other drugs, pumping kids full of Ritalin and all this garbage, and we haven't explored this opportunity. And I think now we are. And so for me, it's okay. There's been nothing new for 30 years in mental health drugs other than just drugging people with more drugs. This looks more interesting. Let's put some dollars aside for this. Got it. Now, we're going to go back. We're going to move out of psychedelics for a second. And we're going to go to cannabis. Cannabis, all right? So, mm. Kevin, are you invested in cannabis companies? Or what do you think about the cannabis space? You're from Canada, so you have uh, a unique perspective. And I think, I think the audience will really enjoy you sharing that. Yeah. So let's talk about what cannabis is. Cannabis is a Schedule One narcotic. Um, that puts it in a difficult place for institutional investors because it invokes the RICO statute. Let me explain how this works. If you have two states beside each other, one has legalized cannabis and the other hasn't, and you're a shareholder, this is a technical term, and somebody takes it across the border, you have aided and, aid and, and abetted transferring a Schedule I narcotic. That's about 23 years in jail. Um, not that interested in that outcome for me. And so I don't want to be the test case for that theory. And everybody says, oh, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. Well, if I don't have to worry about it, why don't we just get it off the Schedule I narcotic list? And there's, there, are, there are actual examples of, of citizens who have been banned from the U.S. for life for going to a cannabis conference in Arizona. And so, yes, they exist. This is bad. And so I, I represent institutional capital. We're always trying to put money to work. What I would have liked to have seen for the cannabis industry, because I've never been able to invest in it because of the Schedule One problem, is this. The potential for cannabis THC as a medicine, had they bifurcated the industry so that we went through the FDA trial process, not for recreational use, it would have brought hundreds of billions of dollars into this space. But there isn't a dime of institutional money in here. I know people say, oh, I know a guy at an institution, yada, yada, yada. I'm telling you, zero at the sovereign level, zero. And the, the, industry, the industry, in my view, screwed itself. It screwed itself. Mothers Against Drunk Driving, pounding the table at the senators in every state saying you can't legalize this, yada, 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 yada. Who's going to go against Mothers Against Drunk Driving? Nobody. And so you've got a lot of tension in this space that should have been resolved early on. I blame the industry for shooting itself in the foot. Recreational cannabis is great, but it's a nothing burger compared to what this would be if it was a medicine. And the potential THC in, in small amounts or you know, medicinal amounts being FDA trialed and then approved as a drug, that would have been interesting for institutions. And I think, frankly, and I look at markets like Ontario, as you mentioned, the most advanced, that business sucks. They don't allow them to brand anything. All of the registries are really hard to work with. So the people in Ontario simply buy it from their dealers at a 30% discount, that nothing's changed, and it's a miserable business. So that's not a great investment at all, and the PEs of those stocks have been crushed. You can't get me excited about that. So your point is, people in Ontario aren't going to the stores as much, they're going right to the direct source, their dealers, basically? Yeah, it's cheaper, like a lot. 
Same thing in California. Same, same. There's plenty of examples of where the state has to get aligned with the market. Now, either you arrest all the dealers and throw them in jail like we've been doing forever, except that's a problem now because it's legal. So now you have to figure out the distribution channels. In, in Canada, they don't allow branding. So THC is THC, whether it's in a gummy or an edible or you're buying it in, in you know, smokable form. There's no differentiation. So the poor schmoes that are making that are selling a commodity and their margins are getting crushed. I don't find any of this very exciting as an investor. So, I mean, I think a conference like this, this industry should do some soul searching and say, how do we fix this? And you start by convincing the president to get it off the Schedule One narcotic list and you bring in billions of dollars into it for both the medicinal and recreational side after you get it off the Schedule One narcotic list. That's cannabis. That's not the problem the psychedelics industry has. It still can attract institutional capital. Yeah, so do, is a psychod when is Big Pharma going to get in the psychedelic space? I think Big Pharma is starting to look at it because you're trying to figure out outcomes on massive addressable markets. And the way I view it is, this is a personal opinion, but I look at this market, a Thai, uh, Compass, MindMed, they're going to have to merge because they need each another $200 million by the time they get this to a medicine. That's about a billion bucks they've got to raise. It's much better if they combine all these trials together. In my view, these companies all have their own management. You know, I know them all. Um, I, we talked about this two years ago. I said, guys, there's so much dough to be raised here, but so much potential. We could get strategic into this thing. Let's merge them all together. That's not how they viewed it. So I own stock in all of them. You own stock in all of them. And like, do you think it's going to be one winner or you, maybe a big merger of all three or like? I think what happens is you've got. Do we have some breaking news you, here? No. You, you've got the uh, LSD crowd, the microdosing crowd. Okay. Um, and a lot of skepticism around that, but a lot of optimism too, depending on who you talk to. You've got the psilocybin crowd, then you've got the alternative, um, you know, molecule where you're modifying either of those, each trying to address different afflictions around mental health. Uh, there's a lot of anecdotal information coming out of the West Coast in the programming field, even though it's illegal. They're microdosing LSD, got it, okay. and they're which I don't endorse, you know, but it, it's it's obviously got the the research crowd really interested in understanding how this works. And that's why those clinical trials are so important. But psilocybin also has potential as well. Plus, there's the whole counseling market where you take these drugs in addition to a, to a counselor. So th there's a lot of different use cases to this thing. But I'm far more constructive on psychedelics for institutional capital than I am for cannabis for reasons I just detailed. And, you know, don't shoot the messenger. Everybody was so excited about this. Those stocks have come down 80% in PE since this no, whole thing started. You're right. You're right. And like, I'll be remiss if I don't, like, we got Mr. Wonderful Community. You have your, you're in the, the, the wedding business. You're on, like, what, Shark Tank, what's your best business or whatever to mention here people should go to? What's one of your favorites? Um, there's many favorites, but. Um, what, which one do you want people to well, buy? What, here's, here's what I've learned about this whole Shark Tank thing. You know. Somebody walks out in the carpet. I've never seen them before. We give them a million dollars. Uh, we have no idea what the outcome is going to be. We think we've got a winner, but we don't know. And then two years later, some ridiculous product that should have gone to zero ends up selling for like a hundred million dollars. And so I have a different view about it now. Like the alarm company? I just had uh, dinner with him last night at Casa Tua. Jamie and I stayed. Oh, together. Jamie, yeah, Casa Tua. Thanks for the invite. Just well, you know, it was business as usual with him. We get that, that's a joke because he wouldn't take my six hundred thousand. I would have made two hundred million dollars. Wait, you were to get six hundred? That was a royalty deal? Of course. 
Of course, there's royalty deal. And you're gonna so we're talking about ring, right? Ring. Yeah. yeah. You were gonna invest six hundred thousand. That six hundred thousand would have been two hundred million. Yeah. And Kevin wouldn't have been here. <laughs> Listen, I never cry about spilt milk. What am I supposed to do? Yeah. But you know that that whole thing. But there's other like think about uh, product like uh, base pause. Maybe some of you remember this thing. A woman walks out on the carpet. She says. You take a swab and you stick it in your cat's orifice and you send it to me and I give you a DNA profile of when Fluffy's going to die. And I thought, that is so stupid. I can't even imagine. The test kit's $29 and you can get a new cat for five bucks. So, but I invested in anyways because she had such a great track record as an entrepreneur. During the pandemic, who knew? There's 110 million cats. Oh my God. And in America. And every one of them got something up their rear end. Because <laughs> that business has exploded. Wow. And, and I was wrong, and, but I own a nice chunk of it, so I'm pretty happy. You own a lot. How many have you done? How many investments have you done? Oh, I mean, I've been doing this for 14 years. Um, you know, the, the basic numbers are for Shark Tank. What you have to understand is in syndication, it's 100 million eyeballs. So you can take a product. The number one reason companies go to business and venture is they run out of dollars to acquire customers. They go bankrupt advertising. But when you're on Shark Tank, you acquire customers for free. So you can take a marginal business and all of a sudden it's profitable on Shark Tank because it's in syndication and perpetuity. So we make a lot of money on things like, I don't know if you saw the recent episode, Banana Loca. You, 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 you can now send a banana in your kid's lunchbox filled with peanut butter but unpeeled. How does that work? You stick a catheter up a banana and then press peanut butter into it. I thought, what a stupid idea. And Alex backstage said, I have to own that. And on the first night on Shark Tank, $2 million worth of it sold. Wow. And, and all of a sudden, all the big banana companies are calling and saying, hey, can we do a deal? Can we do a royalty? So you're invested in it. Yeah. I'm, I'm, Cuban and I bought Banana Loca. It's the stupidest idea I've ever seen. Okay. okay. Crazy. Well, guys, if you don't follow Kevin on Instagram, Twitter, do it today. Follow him. He great updates. Banana Loca. See, I, we missed that one. Peanut butter. But it's no brainer. Making things more efficient and easier is the end. You know the 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 game, right? You no, know, I think Lori taught me something. Stupid things make made of plastic sell a lot. Really? That's it. And you have your wines, right? Oh, wines. oh they're doing great. Yeah. yeah. And we got MindMed. Check it out. And uh, thank you, Kevin, for coming on this morning. Thank you very much. Yeah.